Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Not just another episode, episode 200. Incredible. Episode 200. Who would have known? Well, maybe you did. And for that reason, I am so, so thankful to all of you out there who have responded, who have listened, who have tweeted, who have emailed me have FedExed me, texted me. It's incredible the response that you guys have given. And I also want to tell you how incredibly grateful I am to every single guest that's come on this show and dedicated their time and provided us, the audience, with some of the greatest motivation, the greatest inspirational stories and the most incredibly worldly life lessons that we could ever, ever dream of getting in our lifetimes. And thank you so much for your support. Because of you guys, we are where we are. We never would have this kind of audience without you. And again, I I just can't even begin to tell you how much I owe to all of you, each and every one of you for your support. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And today's episode is going to be very unusual for uh, for all of you who listen. It is an episode that is unlike any episode that I've ever done, not just the way it's formatted, not just the way the questions are presented, but even the way the technical side of it and the audio and the way it's presented 
will seem very different to you. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the guest that I'm going to interview today for this 200th episode, I'm interviewing them for a number of different reasons, but it just so happens that this weekend is the 100th birthday of JFK. And as you know, I've dedicated a lot of time in my life to working on a documentary called I Killed JFK that basically chronicles the life and trajectory of the only living person in history who's ever admitted to killing JFK. And so I'm working hard on this, and I finally got a one-night theatrical distribution through Chaos Connect and Screen Vision in theaters all across the country. And it's going to be this Wednesday, May 31st, one night only. And you can go to ikilljfk.com to find a theater near you. I hope you go see it. I got the interview the last remaining living person who actually had ties to somebody who was right there, right in it. And that's Lee Harvey Oswald's girlfriend, Judith Very Baker. And so what I thought I wanted to do to add to this documentary is I would interview via Skype my guest today, she had the knowledge, she was there, she was on the inside, and her story is going to blow you away. And before I get into it, I want to share with you again that this documentary is unique in the sense for me in that I don't have a dog in this fight. I just was fascinated by what these people had to say and how all of them tied together stories that supported what happened that day with found footage, never before seen interviews that shed light onto this mystery and help you solve what happened that day through the eyes of 20 different, incredible, powerful, respected people in the world. And I guarantee you, if you go to the movie this Wednesday, May 31st, that when you see this documentary and the panel discussion immediately following, it will change your life forever and change the way you think about the way the government works and the way everything happened and went down that day, not just with Lee Harvey Oswald, but with the government, the FBI, the CIA, Lyndon Johnson, the Mafia, uh, the Cubans, the Russians, and everything in between, told through these many stories highlighted by the only person who's ever admitted to killing JFK. But before I introduce Judith, I want to share with you two things that two people said to me from the film, and I hope I'm not divulging too much, because if you see it, you're going to enjoy it. The first one being from Jim Mars, the journalist who was in Dallas in 1963 and an expert in the field. He said something fascinating. He said, it's not whether or not you believe that this person pulled the trigger and killed JFK or not. Any crackpot 
can kill somebody. What's really fascinating about the documentary and everything that everybody has to say is who had the power to cover it up for 54 years. And finally, Gordon Ferry, the national security advisor for five presidents, starting with Eisenhower, he told me this, and this really shook me to the core. And this will set up this interview with Judith. He said, November 22, 1963, was like a party. It was like a social event in Dallas. People flew in from all over the world to see Kennedy get assassinated. He just was one of the few people who didn't know what was going to happen. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Huh? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Without further ado, Judith Very Baker was Lee Harvey Oswald's girlfriend from April 1963 until his death at the hands of Jack Ruby in the Dallas police station. She is an American artist, writer, and poet, born May 15, 1943 in South Bend, Indiana, and best known in documentaries and in books and articles for coming forward with the assertion that she was a very close associate of Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin and the murder of President John F. Kennedy, which she claims was a CIA mafia conspiracy, with Oswald being a designated scapegoat. She first decided to tell her story some 38 years after the JFK assassination, claiming she had kept silent out of fear for retaliation from the conspirators, who she says threatened to kill her on numerous occasions if she talked. She interpreted the list of witnesses who died mysteriously over the years as a tacit justification for her fears. However, after seeing the movie JFK of Oliver Stone, who claimed silent witnesses were cowardice, Judith says she mustered the courage to come forward. Her story is generally painted as controversial, but powerful and true. A wizard student with the highest IQ in her class, she was introduced to a high-ranking Norwegian geneticist and radiobiologist with CIA ties who had served as a double agent against Hitler. His exploits as a spy fascinated her, and he provided her with equipment and contacts after she indicated her interest in finding a cure for cancer. Her stellar research and its results were soon noticed by professors and scientists with high-profile connections in politics and the medical world. This resulted in invitations to science programs and science fairs nationwide. In 1961, at age 17, she became the first high school student allowed to attend the Elite Science Writer Cancer Research Seminar a five-day national meeting of science writers and the world's most important cancer research scientists, where her research was inspected by top people from the American Cancer Society. 
1963, Judith was invited to New Orleans to serve her country by taking part in another special cancer research project. Judith soon learned that this was a top-secret project to develop a bioweapon in order to terminate the Cuban leader Fidel Castro with a cancer-causing virus. Young and impressionable, Judith saw Fidel Castro as a cruel communist dictator, a threat to national security and the American way of life. Under the direction of Alton Oshner, a well-connected and funded by right-wing politicians and Texas oil barons, the project was led by Dr. Mary Sherman, and also involved were David Ferry, Clay Shaw, Guy Bannister, and Lee Harvey Oswald, who took Judith under his wings, introduced her to these people, and Judith and Lee began liking each other very much, which developed into a love affair, even though both were married. After the JFK assassination, Mary Sherman was murdered on the day the Warren Commission started its hearings in New Orleans. Guy Bannister died too in 64, reportedly of a heart attack. However, witnesses claimed that his office was taped off by the police as a crime scene. His extensive files were confiscated by the FBI. David Ferry died from what officially was ruled a suicide, which version is challenged by many researchers believing it was a homicide, just before he was to testify in the trial of Jim Garrison, wherein he charged Clay Shaw and Ferry as participants in the alleged conspiracy that killed JFK. With all of them gone, as well as Lee Harvey Oswald, Judith Baker remains one of the last living people to have ties to the JFK assassination. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lee Harvey Oswald's lover, Judith Vary Baker. I'm uh, stunned to be allowed to speak here uh, after so many battles. Well, we're going to talk about all the battles, and I appreciate you being here. What I want the audience to know is that I have no idea where you are right now. The producers have told me that you weren't allowed to disclose your location. And I think before we get started, I think it's important for our audience to know why you are, I guess you'd say, in hiding. Well, so I can talk to you, so I can stay alive. I've had a lot of threats. Uh, it's amazing, really, that I'm still here, but I trust in God, and I think that my life was preserved for a purpose. You just look back on November 22nd, and the leader of the free world is taken out. Don't you think if they want to take you out, they're going to find you and take you out? Well, let's see. I've been hospitalized five times in four years. I lost all my possessions. They poured water over my computer and everything I owned. I lost my position teaching. I had to run overseas um, and try to live. I've been living overseas for 10 years. I come back with bodyguards. For example, today alone, I have a site called JudithBaker.com, and it's been attacked with uh, uh, trying to get into it. You know, passwords locked out six times just today. I have had uh, people look at my computers, and they've seen I had six over 6,000 attacks on my computer in just one week. And that's the kind of thing I have to put up with. But I think the most important is that I can't see very well. I, 
I am almost legally blind because of four concussions that I've received. One was uh, from a, well, fake name, stolen truck, or I should say uh, van, and uh, fake license plates. Uh, Geico got real, real tired of trying to find these people. The fact is, is that those who know me know, know the sufferings that have happened and the fact I can't see my children, my grandchildren. I can't stay with any friends. I'll give you an example. One of my friends in California, after I stayed there a couple of weeks, I said, don't, I shouldn't stay this long. They found two dead babies floating in her swimming pool after I left. And another fact, uh, Debbie Reynolds, not the famous movie star, but over in Garland, Texas, she went with me to find some evidence about Jack Ruby. She was gone two and a half weeks, came back to her house. This is on film. She found her home filled over a meter high, that's over three feet high, with animal, that is dog, especially in human feces. Her house was filled with millions of flies and and uh, maggots and so on, and uh, they had to destroy the house. She had to go and move and live in with her mother. I could talk about other bad things that have happened. They've been documented. I don't want to do this to my friends or my family. So I have no, I have no country. I have no way to be with my grandchildren. And I want to tell you something else. I would have been a rich woman. All I had to do, because I have the witnesses, and they keep coming out, by the way. We had three new witnesses last year that support everything I'm saying. I'm telling you this. If all I had to do, because of all the evidence I have, all I have to do is say, Lee Oswald killed Kennedy, I'd be a wealthy woman. I'd be having a limousine, I'd have all this stuff. But you know something? I love this man with all my heart, and he's been treated horribly. He's the opposite of what they want you to believe about him. And because I love him, I'm here before you, and I'll take, I'll take whatever arrows you sling at me about why I'm still alive. But there's another thing. I have an IQ of 160, and I'm not stupid. I go under uh, different names. I've have friends who uh, buy tickets for me in their names and so on. Uh, I never, for example, I don't buy one, just, just one airline ticket to get somewhere. I'll buy two at least. And, uh, and th th this is expensive, but this is the way I have to do it. I may take a, a train, a bus, or have someone drive me to a certain place. I never return to the same city when I've returned from the United States. Based on all your knowledge and all the things that you've been a privy to and all the people you've talked to, who actually shot JFK that day? And do you believe that James Files was the guy on the grassy knoll that delivered the fatal shot? This is a complex question which requires, in my uh, position, a complex answer. First of all, Jimmy Files has nothing to gain by what he's confessed. He's also, uh, he has spoken uh, certain uh, things to me, uh, well, this is through correspondence, that made me understand that he knew that Lee was innocent and that he also has provided a reason for me to believe why Lee had to cut me off suddenly on Sunday. Okay, that was 17th of November. 
and I had to wait until Wednesday to call it leave back because of a call wheel we had set up. Uh, nobody else had ever provided a reason for why Lee had to hang up. He said he, he could not get away from this person. On the other hand, Lee told me he had met a number of people, and so I have a few conflicts with what Jimmy Files has said. On the other hand, I know darn well that Jimmy was involved with the mafia, and he was a driver. He has mentioned uh, with the most cold and lack of, uh, of passion how he shot JFK. This is what a person does when they are a killer. Now, Jimmy had an experience in, that he viewed uh, or had some kind of experience spiritually with Jesus Christ. And I believe that he's put himself forward, if not for himself, but to clear his conscience at the very least that he knows who did it and he's taking the blame because he's killed people himself. So that's how far I can go. I was not there in Dealey Plaza. I can't say Jim Files killed Kennedy, but I can tell you one thing, he sure acts like it. So take us back when you met Lee for the first time. Where were you? What happened? And they say that a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a guy if she's gonna be with him. Did you know? Immediately, absolutely. So tell us the circumstances and when you found out, how long after that did you find out what he was involved with? <laughs> you would be surprised how, how quickly that happened. See, I had known a spy earlier, his name, uh, well, it's not that important, but uh, what is important is that, for example, I had dated Tony Lopez Frisquet, who was the son of the Cuba's finance minister under Castro. And his father was uh, actually associated with the CIA. I had learned a great deal about uh, Cuba. I thought I knew a lot more than uh, Lee when I first met him. That turned out to be ridiculous. Lee knew, had memorized every mountain, rivulet, valley, river, the entire history of Cuba, uh, everything, because originally they had planned to have him go into Cuba. I knew what kind of a man he was after we met. You see, I didn't see a wedding ring on his uh, left hand when we first met. And it was only a few minutes after that, after I already flirted with him and everything, I was angry at my fiance for not coming and not uh, when he said he was going to come, not, not writing. Uh, I was disappointed, and here was Lee Oswald standing behind me, young and very nice-looking young man, and I was attracted to him immediately. To make a long story short, it turned out that he actually uh, knew Russian. I knew Russian. This was incredible to me because I was in New Orleans, and I didn't understand at first, but when I saw the wedding ring on his right hand, I realized that he had married someone who was probably the Soviet Union. We started talking about things like that. When I realized that he had been in the Soviet Union and had returned at the height of the Cold War without being arrested, I knew I was looking at a hero. That's how it started. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. 
whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. If, in fact, Lee Harvey Oswald never fired a shot, but everybody that day presumably had a mission, had marching orders. So in your opinion, was Lee involved in the assassination plot? Was he involved in preventing the assassination? Was he involved in the CIA? And what were his marching orders to accomplish that day? Well, one of the things that people don't realize, I said, I know there's nothing out there about this. And it will look like to you like I'm just making a wild claim. But Lee Oswald had joined an abort team. And that team had been put together in order to try to save Kennedy's life. Unfortunately, it meant that Lee Oswald had to stay put in one area. And now uh, I believe the abort team was uh, just concocted, put together, in order to make sure he would stay where he was, uh, waiting to um, maybe like stop an ass assassin and so on. When I said this to Jim Mars, he sat up and looked at me. He said, nobody knows about the abort team. And I said, well, yeah, I know that. No, he said, no, but I do. He said, Robert Tosh Plumley told me all about this not long ago. And he had showed me a map and he showed me this, that, and the other. And he said, now I'm going to listen to you, Judith. And he certainly has been a friend and supporter ever since, as I reveal more and more things that I knew. For example, Lee told me the name of the operation to kill Kennedy was called the big event. I brought this out in 2003. Uh, you had the CIA operative, Mr. Hunt, who named the operation the big event some months after I did on tape. So I have had a lot of inside information I've been able to give and to offer. So. How did you know that Lee worked for the CIA and what his involvement was, not only with the CIA in the past, the present, but leading up to November 22, 1963? Okay. Um, I was in the post office. I had a fiancé who was supposed to be writing me every day, and he said he would come marry me and, and so on. He had a huge IQ, bigger than mine, and about the only person I could find that was taller than I had, a 186 IQ, incredible. He went on to become a star with Exxon Corporation, many uh, patents and all that. He turned out 
to be, uh, shall we say, like having Asperger's. He didn't mean to be the way he was, but he was very careless with me and my feelings. And in this case, callous, because he hadn't been writing. I didn't know whether he was going to come at one at all uh, and marry me or what. And I had been invited to come to New Orleans and work on a project on cancer with a very important woman. Her name was Dr. Mary Sherman. She was working with Dr. Alton Oxner. I knew all these people. They had seen my work. I had given cancer to weanling mice in only seven days. Um, nobody had been able to do that before that, that few days. And I did this in a primitive lab. Well, that turned out to be very important because I'd had world-class training since then, but I knew how to handle um, various, uh, well, let's put it this way, dangerous viruses that cause cancer. And that for a long time, uh, they suppressed the uh, notion that, that any virus could cause cancer. Trust me, we now have the papillomavirus, for example, that you can get a, uh, you know, a vaccine for. So they're finally admitting this. How do you think it's possible that you know, all these people who are behind the scenes that we're going to talk about killed Kennedy, but in a concentrated effort with the best experts and the smartest people in the world, we failed to kill Castro. Well, I think that uh, there's a, a there's proximity, first of all. I mean, Kennedy's right under your nose. Castro's in a different country. And number two, Castro had a lot of spies. One of the reasons that Lee Oswald was sent to New Orleans was to help to ferret out these spies. I mean, Castro knew people were out there to get him. He also knew the mafia was being paid a lot of money. Uh, but the mafia was also helping Castro because what? Think about this. Every time uh, they were given money, they would say they're going to go after Castro, but why should they kill him? Then they don't get any more money. You see what I'm saying? So a lot of leaks were going on. When Lee Oswald was sent to New Orleans, uh, he posed as pro-Castro and was handing out like leaflets. We could go into a lot of detail there, but to make a long story short, they were being filmed. People who took those leaflets, if they were, uh, if they looked Latino and if they were male, they were followed, often arrested, often deported. So Lee was clearing out some of these spies that Castro had, and he had them everywhere. You understand that New Orleans is uh, where, uh, real close to Lake Pontchartrain, where training camps were going on that summer, including uh, one that Lee Oswald got involved with. He penetrated that group. So Lee was there actively trying to clear everything so that we could do our project, for example, without it getting hijacked, uh, ruined, uh, infiltrated, and so on. The reason that we had part of it uh, outside the, the general circle, we had all these doctors working, they didn't know about each other necessarily. They had, you know, this doctor or this lab had a portion and so on, but they had to break that ring so they wouldn't be in communication with each other. For that reason, we had David Ferry, who mother had uh, died of cancer and he had, he was friends with Dr. Mary Sherman. He was untraceable. I was another untraceable. Even though um, I had a lot of training, I wasn't a doctor yet, no credentials. So we were ideal. And on top of that, I had worked in primitive labs before. I knew how to handle these dangerous um, viruses and everything that we were working with. I understood them perfectly well. And I had another thing going for me. I had been uh, trained at Roswell Park Institute 
and worked with RPMI uh, 1640 medium. This medium was the most advanced in the world. It hadn't yet come out to the public. In fact, we were still developing it. I helped work on that. I have documents to show that. And so I was one of the few people in the world who had a formula that would make cancer grow faster than any other formula would. So for many reasons, I was brought in to um, work on this project. Now, here's what's interesting about Lee Oswald. Why in the world would he be involved in this kind of project to kill Castro? First of all, he was interested in killing Castro. Castro was doing everything he could to protect himself. But one of the things he hadn't really worked on so much, he really trusted his doctors. He had very good reasons to do so. Some of them, however, had other contacts who maybe weren't as, uh, shouldn't have been trusted as much. And I'm talking about lab techs. For example, when you go in to get an x-ray, the doctor is not the one who handles the x-ray machine. Have you any idea who handles your x-rays when you're x-rayed, my friend? No. No. Well, do you think Castro had uh, done a lot of research on who is handling his x-rays when he's told to get an x-ray because he has a cough? Well, I'm telling you, we had our ways and we had our uh, contacts. Um, Castro had decided to uh, send all the doctors to be to the USSR instead of to the United States. And uh, they were getting very good training there, but they were also on salaries. I mean, we know one contact we had, he was supposed to, he thought he was going to become a very rich man working as a plastic surgeon. Instead, he was out there fixing peasants' broken noses, you see, uh, not making much more than a peasant for what he was doing. So we had some disgruntled uh, people. A lot of them were the sons of or daughters of some of these trusted doctors. So there's the situation. Castro is basically being uh, kept very carefully um, from danger and from harm by people who really loved him and cared about them a great deal. But we knew we had ways to get through to them because people trust their doctors. You see, Alton Oxner himself learned this the hard way. He had put a lot of money into Cutter Laboratories, uh, their new polio vaccine. He was so proud of what was accomplished and what his doctor friends there who were, uh, had developed the vaccine, he brought in uh, photographers, he called everybody together, he injected the Cutter vaccine, the polio vaccine, into his own grandchildren, a little toddler and his sister. That little boy was dead seven days later, and the little girl got polio. If he had waited one more day, he would have heard about California banning it because people were dying from this cutter vaccine. It's called a cutter incident. But why did he hire you when you were 19? I was induced to come because uh, th what they did is they told me I would be uh, getting into grad school, medical school, two years early. And everything would be paid. All I had to do is have an internship with Dr. Sherman. But that got turned all upside down when I met, when I came two weeks early and met Lee Oswald because I was a loose cannon at that time. I had come two weeks early because University of Florida got out two weeks earlier because they went on the new trimester system. And here I came early and my doctors were out of town. I, uh, I was at the YWCA. I 
I couldn't believe it. They didn't know I was coming or anything. And I was very naive. If you read my book, Me and Lee, you'll see that I had no way of going home at that time. My parents um, didn't want me to go to college. They wanted me to run their business and so on and so forth. So there I was stuck. I had almost no money. I had to move in into the cheapest room in that YWCA because I didn't have very much money with me. And I so I was with two strippers, a Playboy bunny, and a real tough waitress. And I had to pay her money so she wouldn't steal my stuff. I mean, this was what um, the situation was. And here, Dr. Oxner was in um, Latin America. Dr. Mary Sherman was away at a conference. And I had nobody to protect me. And what happens? Lee Oswald finally shows up, and he becomes my protector. So he was young. He, uh, they couldn't have sent an old geezer, uh, you know. And uh, I was angry at, because my fiancé had not written. This man is standing behind me. He's clean cut. He, he's nice. He's polite. I look. He doesn't have a ring on his finger. Only later do I see that. But you have a ring on your finger. Oh, no, I wasn't married yet. You said you're a fiancé. That means you're engaged. Oh, but he was a cheapskate. I had to buy my own wedding ring. He didn't even give me an engagement. <laughs> I mean, this man was so cheap that he gambled his own money away, used my paycheck, as it turned out, and uh, I, I couldn't believe how, how, how mean he was. He, we were married one day, one day, and he left. So you did get married. On weeks. Well, yeah, but fun, yeah, because I wanted birth control pills. I, they were so important to me because I didn't want to get, you know, pregnant. I don't and understand that, what you just said. You have to get married to get birth control pills? That's the way it was. I have all the documentation to prove it. In 1963, if you weren't married, you could not get them. So I, that, in fact, it, it was so important to me. I've shown many, I've got these evidence files. One of the things I kept was a pink birth control pill from way back then. That's how important it was. I probably had the oldest birth control pill outside of some uh, company, you know, in existence. It's just one of the little things I kept. I kept a lot of things because I was in a project and I was all for it to kill Castro. That man had aimed nuclear weapons at my family and me and everybody right there in Florida only six months earlier. And we came so close to the brink of nuclear war. And you bet one man rather than World War III? Yes, that's why I agreed. I agreed to help when I found out uh, what they wanted me to do to participate in this project. So the project ends unsuccessful and then where do you go from there and where does Lee go from there? Well, the project didn't end until right at the uh, very first of August. I mean, uh, excuse me, September. It, at, at the first of August is when we started experimenting with, well, to make a long story short, I was kicked out of the project for objecting. They used prisoners. They used volunteers and didn't tell them that if the material worked, it would kill them. When I objected, I was kicked out of the project and saved my life because I was Judy Vary with the project. I was Mrs. Baker when I was working on the cover job with Lee Oswald. You know, we were hired the same day by the little 
Standard Coffee Company, which was a subsidiary of Riley, a bigger company. There were like eight to 10 employees there. And we were there a week, and the same day we were transferred over to Riley. I've got all the documents, everything. And on the, um, seven, see, on the 19th of July, Lee was fired. On the 20th, they have an ad in the paper to replace me because I was covering for him. It's a long story. You can read it in the book, me and Lee. But the point is, is that even after that, when Lee was arrested on August 9th, that's the last, they fired me at Riley. So I've got that evidence as well. We've had Dr. John Delane, Delane Williams, who's done a, a study, a statistical study and an analysis showing that the chances are over a million to one that that was all accident and a 99% chance that we were lovers. So we have a lot of uh, things like that. Um, so many coincidences like Lee and I arrived the same week in New Orleans. We got our same apartments the same week in New Orleans, only walking distance from each other. We left New Orleans in September, same month, never to return. I could go on and on with all the coincidences, like I could speak Russian. I mean, this is what amazed him. Now, I wasn't very good at it, but I had, um, I have the record showing that I studied Russian, and so I could uh, actually read Russian uh we have all these uh, various medical treatises and journals and so on that were in Russian that I needed to know, see how far advanced they were in cancer research. It was one of the things they had me do. The History Channel is trying to tell us uh, recently that Lee Oswald met with a Russian assassin named Kostikov. And this former CIA agent who gets his retirement checks from the CIA is the one they're using for their so-called, quote, independent, unquote, investigation. And so they have Lee Oswald, they say, meeting with Kostikov, uh, calling him on the phone. And yet we have Edgar Hoover himself, the head of the FBI, in a, in a conversation that we have recorded saying that Lee Oswald was not the person that was talking to Kostikov in this broken Russian this was a fake. This was an imposter. It wasn't Lee Oswald. Despite that, History Channel pretends it was. It's just outrageous. And they do things like that. I can tell you, I can assert to you as a fact, Lee Harvey Oswald went to Mexico City to hand off a biological weapon. They don't want you to know about things like this because if if the world knew that Lee was CIA and that he had been framed and cruelly, cruelly betrayed by the CIA, they would understand a little bit about how the CIA can't be trusted even by its own operatives. It was horrible what happened to Lee. We were in love. It, he was promised to be able to stay in Mexico City. And you know what happened? He was forced to, to uh, return. Uh, he was not able to drop off the material. In my book, I showed step by step how he left the material, how he went to the U.S. Public Health Service at the border. We have the records for that. Told them where the material was. 
had saved a lot of um, uh, his suit and all kinds of things over in Laredo. We have records showing the FBI went to Laredo, Texas, went through um, safety deposit boxes there looking for Lee Oswald's money and everything else. Of course, they'll never tell you what they found. But the fact is that they went there because Lee and I were going to go and live in Mexico. We had been promised that we could be um, just informants for the FBI and CIA there. And all that was lies. All that was lies to entrap him, to send him to Mexico City, just like the History Channel is saying he was there to meet with assassins. They put imposters in there to pretend they were him. It's disgusting. And I will stand against that. Uh, bring them on. So take our audience through the last week or two before November 22nd. When did you, as his lover, find out that there was something going to go down on that day? When's the first time you knew something? And when's the first time he knew something? All right, the first time was in July, was July 26, 1963. He had met um, with uh, some, uh, well, I'll put it this way, he was at, at um, he had given a talk over in Mobile, Alabama. And at that time, uh, Bobby Kennedy sent down a, a priest, a Jesuit priest, but CIA was also there. And at that time he found out they were not gonna be sending him to college as they had promised, that they were not going to let him advance. Lee told me, I think I'm gonna be a dead man. I said, well, well what is it, Lee, what happened? And he said this, he said, I didn't, Jesus didn't uh, like the fact that I didn't come back in a coffin. And he won't trust me now because I may have turned. He said, they're not gonna let me advance. He said, this puts me in a bad spot because they're having me pose as pro-Castro. They could use me, you know, they could, they could just blow me away that way, use me. Now that's, that was his first um, hint, if you want to say that. I was in Florida, and I had my pack my bags and all that. They'd given me a special job. You see, I was kicked out of cancer research, but there was a problem. All these uh, reporters, I, they were always following me around. I, I, my name was all over the papers all over the United States as being this genius and wonder cocooned and so on and so forth. The trouble is, is um, all of a sudden I'm not in it anymore. So they had a problem. What they did is they put me in a prestigious position at Peninsular Chem Research doing uh, some really good work with halogens and uh, polymers and so on. It, it was only barely related to cancer, but it would be a way to make it look like I was still in the field. Now here's what's interesting. I was just a sophomore. They changed my records. I had invented a new method to get magnesium out of seawater, okay, uh, using a modified process that had been uh, first used in Germany. And I'd gone to International Science Fair. I met Ver von Braun and all kinds of people like that. Got all kinds of help from my cancer research at that time. All of that, but if you look at my record at the University of Florida, it says all I have is one basic course in chemistry with a D. Now you tell, and I have all my records. I've got my W-2 forms. I've got my checks and everything showing that I worked at Peninsular Chem Research. Now, there's, that was founded by the University of Florida professors in chemistry. Any of those students over there, they would have given their eye teeth to work for nothing for the position I had. But they had to put me there so it looked like 
no, none of the reporters would catch on that I was not going to be in cancer research anymore. And from that position, then I was slowly let go. And I was not even allowed to take a chemistry course. I tried. Uh, they blocked me. Hey, everybody. I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. So let's say a week before the assassination, where are you both and what's happening? Well, he was in Dallas. He was ordered back to Dallas. How many days before the assassination? Well, he was ordered back around October 6th. He re, uh, 5th or 6th, he returns. He goes to the YWCA first and is debriefed there. And at that time... Uh, he's told that Hurricane Flora is the reason that they called this off. Now, whole, the whole idea is if we could have killed Castro, we believed that this would save Kennedy's life. We had enough information to know that the same people who knew, well, we call it Murder Incorporated, you can call it that, that's what Nixon would, wanted to call it, had everything put together so they could kill Castro, but they could use it against anybody. And uh, we know that in Chicago, for example, Lee told me on the phone, I believe I saved Kennedy's life three weeks ago. And and he explained. Now, when I mentioned this back in 1999, people just laughed me out. They said, come on, we can believe that Lee was, you know, a patsy, but come on, don't tell us that he saved Kennedy's life or that he thought he did uh, three weeks before. We now have Abraham Bolden, Secret Service. We have James Douglas, and it's called JFK and The Unspeakable, the wonderful book. And in there you find out that a man named Lee informed the FBI and they had it, it resulted in the arrest of armed gunmen and Kennedy's trip to Chicago was called off. Now there are many more things I could tell you. We don't have time for them all. But Lee was telling me these things because he said this, I need to tell you this because I think they're going to kill me. I've gotten in too deep. I'm under suspicion because I saved Kennedy, you know, earlier. He said, I I don't think I'm going to get out of this alive. He said, will you do this for me? All I ask you is tell my, you just have to stay alive and stay, stay down and everything like that. Tell my children, tell my little girls that I was a good guy. 
That's all I ask of you. How can I turn that down? I had to stay quiet. Love him with all my heart. I saw him killed on television. You'll never know what that's like to live with that kind of thing. Yeah, they blame him. It's the most ironic thing in the world. You ought to see. They've got film. They've got film where they, they show him being told that he's been charged with the murder of Kennedy. You ought to see his face. You can see it right on YouTube. This is not a man who was seeking glory for himself. He said, I'm a patsy, for heaven's sakes. Here's the thing. He could not say, I'm CIA. Do you know why? Do you have a guess why? Because he had been an operative. He'd been working for the CIA, and he told me all about the things he did, and I've got a lot of that information, too. He was an agent for the U.S. government, as, and he was borrowed from the Office of Naval Intelligence. He had been specially trained, so he could he could not be brainwashed. He was trained to uh, not crack under interrogation. That's why they couldn't crack him over there in Dallas. He was trained to be a really good spy, and you know something? He had contacts over there. If he'd said, I'm CIA, they would have executed everybody he had contacted who had any significance. That's what the USSR would do. They knew he would never betray his contacts in, in the USSR. They knew he wouldn't. So he, they had him over a barrel. So before the day of the assassination, actually the last time you spoke with him was about a few days beforehand. It was 37 and a half hours before the assassination. Tell our audience what that conversation was like and how long was it? It was about an hour and a half long. I've never told all of it because it kills me to talk about it. But I've, I can tell you one thing. Lee Oswald just wanted me to have babies. He said, please have babies for me. So I had five. It was not easy for me because the doctor said I couldn't even have any. I had, I had four miscarriages to get those five babies. Why it's do you think he said, I, please have babies for me? Because we had planned to have a man. <laughs> we planned to have lots and lots of kids. It's something he loved life. I did too. Now, wasn't he married at the time and had his own kids? Well, he had two, and that's why I said, but the, you have to understand about our marriages. First, as I said, my former husband married me, and then he abandoned me the next night. He was gone. He was gone for three weeks before he came back. He kept that pattern up. He just didn't care. All right, but Lee, on his side of things, he's in the USSR. He's going to be deported unless he gets married to somebody. So he finds someone who's interested, and she gets herself pregnant. He's not going to leave her behind. He's not going to leave his little girl behind. He actually gets out. Now, he has. they had funds for him to get out and get back to the U.S., but not for a wife, a Russian wife and child. So he has to go to the embassy. They give him a State Department loan. In small print, it says only citizens of good standing can get this loan. And with that loan of over $400, which is like $4,000 a day, he was able to bring his wife and child out of the Soviet Union with him. Okay, so they're back in the United States. He's married. He has two children. He'd hardly ever, he was having a terrible time with her. Uh, they weren't getting along. He 
a, a large portion of that time he wasn't living with her at all. By the time we're talking about the last few weeks, I mean, when he comes back from Mexico City, he's not living with her at all. She's living with the pains. And uh, yes, he visits them on weekends. He wants to see his new baby girl, Rachel, and all that, born two days after his birthday on the 18th of October. It was his birthday. At that time on the 18th, okay, which was a Friday, he says, he starts crying and they don't know why he's crying for this little cake, the little birthday cake. But he told me this is the last birthday I'm ever going to have. He had already given a lot of information, a lot of information about what was being planned as he saw it in Dallas, in Dealey Plaza. All right, so take us through that conversation you had with him for an hour and a half. Tell her on it's something that nobody knows. Nobody knows? Well, I've said a lot of things since then. So, for example, that is called the big event, and uh, that's, you know, now everybody's using that term, but they didn't do it. They didn't do it till Hunt came out with it. And then people noticed, oh, I had said it so often in the um, documentary called The Love Affair that History Channel ran, and then they banned it after five times of being shown. Um, I'd said it so often it actually got on the film, even though they'd done 28 hours of filming and it only went down to 42 minutes. It still got in the film. I used it so often. I'm just saying that Lee shared things with me because he wanted his little girls someday to know that he was a good guy. That's the bottom line. But the others, I kept all this material because I thought it was history that we might kill Castro. Turned out it's helping to exonerate the innocent Lee Harvey Oswald. So tell us about the real Lee Harvey Oswald that you knew that he showed you. Well, uh, let me, for example, I at the time was an atheist, and one of the things we did at near the end there, he was an agnostic. He asked me to pray the Lord's Prayer with him. He had been raised a Lutheran. You'll see that there's a document out there for his tourist visa application, and that document's very interesting. I'm going to go into this little detail because it'll show you about Lee Oswald and his sense of humor and so on. But on that, that document, uh, it says that he's Catholic, he did that so we could marry because I had documents saying I was Catholic. We wanted to be married by a Catholic priest in Mexico so it wouldn't be on a civil record anywhere. Now, here's what's very interesting. Lee Oswald got his new passport. His old one was covered with stamps from the USSR. You can't use that very well for ID, and he avoided having a driver's license. He knew how to drive, but his license had been flagged that he was a communist over in Texas, so he, he didn't want to use it. They would find that license at one point, and then it would vanish. But we have witnesses about that. Now, here's what's interesting. He makes out his application, and one of the things he said is, I want you to see just, uh, you know, who I am. He wanted to prove this to me, and for very good reason. We were working. I mean, what if he were lying to me or something like that? So it was important to Lee. This is uh, June 24th, June 25th. Uh, we had, were becoming lovers. He wanted me to see who he really was. He did this two or three times, and it was important because we started sharing so much with each other. So what he did is he showed me uh, his passport, and it was he'd gotten it in 24 hours. Now, they had brought in a few others. I met the man, shook his hand. His name was Charles Thomas. He, pretended, he wrote down that he was Arthur Young on the passport application. Now, just to show you the kind of sense of humor Lee had and who he was, he filled out that he was actually going to go to the, to, uh, the USSR in Cuba on that 
on that application form. And they still passed it in 24 hours. They knew, because his old passport, he had to turn it in, they saw all the stuff on there that he had been in the USSR. They still did this in 24 hours, but here's the clincher. And nobody in all these 40 years, here's something nobody knew, I say 40, 50 years, all these researchers, they're looking at these things, but they didn't know something I did about that application form. I said, finally, I told, I did last month or two months ago, actually, finally posted, did you know this about Lee Harvey Oswald? That he said he married Marina, his Russian wife, on April 31st, 1961. Now, does that resonate with you? Yes. There is no April 31st. They still made that passport good in 24 hours. Do you understand? He's got this sense of humor, and he, he, he actually put a date there that didn't exist for when he married his wife. And you have the, all these little clues and hints that he, he puts out there. Like he said, there was this short and sweet hearing, you know, when they charged him with two murders, and they claimed that he turned down the offer of uh, attorneys or any kind of, any kind of uh, help for him. Now, you know, when he was standing out there in public, he said, well, and, well is there anybody who will come forward and stand forward and, and uh, you know, represent me? Legal representation. He was denied legal representation, and they actually told reporters he turned them down. Do you know anybody in the whole world who would turn down help from an attorney when you're uh, charged with two murders, one of them being the president of the United States and the other a, a police officer, for heaven's sakes? They did terrible things to him. I'm trained medically. I have shown people what they did to this man in private. You know, in 50 years, there's the physical evidence of the Zabruder film, obviously, but there doesn't seem to be any paper trail at all about anything that happened, yet there seems to be so many factions that were involved from the CIA to the president to the Chicago mob to maybe even Cuba. Some people say the Russians. Why do you think it is that there's just no, not one document? Maybe it'll be released later this year. What's your thought about that? Even with your relationship with Lee, yes, there's people that saw you. Yes, there's people who said that you guys were together. It's obvious. No one's disputing that you weren't together. But there's nothing to talk about the assassination. There's nothing that you can read that was a memo from this guy to this guy. Yeah, it's going down. The big event is going down here. This is where you're going. This is what's happening. Nothing. How do you figure that is? Well, we have a book coming out in August. It's called Kennedy and Oswald, The Big Picture. And in there, we do have documents. We have assembled documents. They exist. The trouble is when you have 26 volumes Okay, for the Warren Commission, and in there you find that they're talking about Jack Ruby's mother's teeth, and they have all kinds of all kinds of of interviews of the FBI with people who say, "No, I didn't know Lee Harvey Oswald." You know, page after page. Then all, you have to look, and you'll find a lot of this is buried right in there. For example, I'm just going to give you an example of how they pretended that they showed how Lee Oswald could shoot from the Texas School Book Depository building. They construct a tower. We have the, it's right in, right in the 26 volumes, shows a tower. It's 30 feet lower, 30 feet lower 
than the window from which they say Lee Oswald shot. This tower is set, is set right smack in the middle of the street, 30 feet lower, and they have sharpshooters who are shooting at a stationary car trying to hit that target, and they are not very successful. But they, some of them do. And that said, that's what they used to prove that Lee Oswald actually shot from the Texas School Book Depository window and made his shot. And uh, it's just absurd when anyone who has any brains, if they go into the so-called documents, they're going to find so many ridiculous uh, assertions. For example, they have... They take everything Marina Oswald says seriously. This woman has later said she was threatened with deportation if she was deported. Since Rachel, her youngest, her little girl, was born in U.S., she would have been deported. The little girl would have been left behind. He's dead. Now, you think she's going to cooperate with them? She did. So she tells them that Richard Nixon was in town and her husband, Lee Oswald, had decided he's going to go out and shoot Nixon. She says she kept him, locked him in the bathroom so he couldn't until it was pointed out that, uh, at least in America, bathrooms don't lock from the outside. Then she said she held him three or four minutes inside. Another version is that she kept him in there all day and he couldn't do nothing but read until he decided he wasn't going to go kill Nixon. Then they found that Nixon was never in town. So the Warren Commission itself said, wait, we can't even use this woman for this. But we'll use it for all the other things she said, such as she said that he had a rifle. At first, she said he didn't. Now, we have, I want to tell you right now, I, he kind of showed off to me in a way. I know the firearms he had. He didn't have anything like what they show. First of all, he was a Marine. And if you think a Marine is going to go and uh, order something uh, without even testing it or trying it out first, when he could go around the corner and buy any kind of rifle he wanted and use any kind of excuse he wanted, no, we have to have a paper trail. And the paper trail, by the way, I know his handwriting perfectly. His handwriting on the first uh, for the rifle is different from the handwriting that's for the gun. For the gun, it's in block letters. And, it, and for the uh, one for the rifle, it's in cursive. If, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I don't change my handwriting between two different orders that I might write there. So who framed Lee Harvey Oswald? Well, the CIA and the FBI for a very good reason. You've got Alan Dulles, who was fired by JFK, but he was still running things on the side. He'd been there for years, this man. Alan Dulles hates, just hates the idea that he's no longer in charge. At his side is General Charles Cavill. General Charles Cavill, he stands for the military. You've got others in the military that were very angry at Kennedy because he didn't go in there and bomb Havana. We now know that if we'd bombed Havana, we would have had nuclear war. I mean, Kennedy saved our skins, and he's given no credit. I saw that the Smithsonian Institute recently put that the only thing that Kennedy really had going for him was his good looks and charm. He didn't really do anything. That's how they are destroying Kennedy again. It's a second assassination. This of his character. Let's just talk about uh, womanizing and uh, drugs. Let's not talk about the fact that History Channel said that he helped build a raft, for example, a DT-109, and helped get everybody to shore, when exactly he actually pulled a, a, a prisoner, I mean, a, a victim, you know, of the uh, PT-109, the crash they had, with his teeth 
all the way. The man was on his back. Uh, no, they don't tell you these things anymore. You won't hear about the good things about Kennedy. We have Charles Cavill, General Charles Cavill, CIA, head of the Bay of Pigs stuff. He gets, he's forced to resign. He's fired, basically. It is a disaster for his family. Now, who was running the police department for years and then became mayor of Dallas? The mayor of Dallas at the time that Lee Oswald was there, in the time that Kennedy went through there, mayor of Dallas is Charles Cavill's brother, Earl Cavill. Now, that's, that's just one of many, many things we could talk about. Basically, we have everybody cooperating to get rid of Kennedy for various reasons. And they worked together because they could. And because there were so many of them, you understand this, Hoover was, in two years, Hoover would have been forced to resign because he turned 70. They just couldn't wait till they could do that. Well, LBJ commuted that. You have, uh, instead of being forced to resign at, at age 70, Hoover is made director for life. That is his reward. As for Lyndon Johnson, we have, and Lee told me these words in his last conversation. He said, whatever you do, don't forget these three names. One, David Atlee Phillips. When I first brought out David Atlee Phillips, that he was actually um, involved in the Kennedy assassination, he was a, a very important person in the CIA. Uh, it, it was hard for people to believe. And uh, Lee also told me that he had actually met with Antonio Vesiana of Alpha 66 and with David Atlee Phillips. At the time, he knew him only as Bishop. Well, you know what? Just a couple of weeks ago, my friends, a new book has come out called Train to Kill by Antonio Vesiana, who, after he testified to the HSCA about Mr. Bishop and meeting Mr. Bishop and Lee Oswald, okay, Mr. Bishop being CIA, that he, Lee Oswald, and Mr. Bishop met, he was shot in the head. He was shot in the, in, in, in the abdomen. He survived. He finally came out and privately told people that, yes, this man was David Atlee Phillips. And that verifies what I said, that Lee told me that that man's name, he had found out that Bishop's name was actually David Atlee Phillips. And David Atlee Phillips, he told me never to forget that name. So I told that in 2003. We have Vesiana coming out and saying it in 2017. Now, on top of that, we have uh, other uh, information. For example, the other two names are Bobby Baker and Billy Celestes. And when I said all this in 2003, it was hard, but now everybody knows that Lyndon Johnson would have ended up in prison almost definitely, certainly would have been kicked off the ticket. The very day Kennedy was shot, we had a congressional hearing going on that showed that Lyndon Johnson had accepted bribes and was involved with the mafia. And instead, he became president. And of course, they closed down that investigation. He had the choice to either become president or to go to jail. Now, which one do you think he chose? And Lee told me that. That's how they did it. Tell us a little bit more about Lee Harvey Oswald's personality that the world doesn't know about. Well, I'll start with, for example, how he loves animals or loved animals. We would be walking along and he, well, he just liked uh, cats and dogs and things like that. And he, if he ran into one he didn't know, he'd say, hello, Mr. Dog, or hello, Mr. Cat. It was really endearing to me. 
he had a personality that he was actually by nature friendly. You go look at the photographs of him, you'll see him smiling, you'll see his arms around people, people have their arms around him. But what happened is that when he's CIA and he's on a mission, he can't make friends. It can interfere with what he's trying to get done. So that made him look unfriendly. It was all just a pose. That's not the way he really was. So I, I think people need to know that. He wanted to become a writer. He loved science fiction. We had that in common. In fact, one of my books, my third book, is called Letters to the Cyborgs. And it is science fiction I've written. We had a lot in common with each other. And he actually wrote a science fiction story called Her Way that I have included in this uh, collection of science fiction stories I've written that came out uh, just in 2016. Lee Oswald had a, a forceful personality. You, can't, uh, you couldn't call him a pushover or anything like that, but he preferred to be very quiet. He listened. And because he listened and didn't say much, you would be surprised how much uh, he learned. He played the, what he called the part of the Scarlet Pimpernel. I was fascinated by this because he said he had to pretend like he was stupid sometimes. He had to pretend that he was not who he really was. And, you know, when he was telling me that, I saw his jaw tighten because it was humiliating to him sometimes that he had to act stupid. But by acting stupid, people would say things right in front of him and as if he weren't there. I remember one time we were on the bus and we were sitting together and it was so, he did two really silly things. Uh, I said, you know, I, I just, you're just so handsome. I'm glad to be sitting next to you. And by the way, Jack Ruby is on, on a record saying he thought that Lee looked like uh, Paul Newman. The camera is not, was not kind to Lee's face and all that. And plus they always, ended up choosing photos of him when he was all beaten up or something. And nobody looks good like that. Anyway, we were sitting on the bus and he said, I'm going to show you, he says, what it's like, uh, how I have to act. So he sat down in the back of the bus. We always sat in the back, but he sat in the furthest he could get. And when he did, the first thing he did is sneeze all, all over everybody. So they all moved away. And he had a, poem, he said, I sneezed the sneeze into the air, the droplets fell, I know not where, but everyone inside the bus moved over and made room for us. So anyway, he, he what he was trying to do, and he had a sense of humor, liked to tell lots of jokes, but what he was trying to say is that he could do body language or do other things to make people not like him or not want to be around him or not pay attention to him. That made him a very good infiltrator in that he was like, you know, a fly on the wall. So that, that was one of the things that he did. And there are other times that he was very brave. We were walking through the, we had gone, uh, it's in my book, Me and Lee, how uh, we had gone walking, uh, we had gotten in the God Godfather's car. It was not like the limousines that uh, Carlos Marcello had. This one was an old beat up Chevy and it was, what he used when he was pretending to be the tomato salesman, you know, a nobody. Anyway, I was all excited. Lee said, now you've got to act silly. So I said things like, oh, I hope I get to put my little bottom down on the, on the uh, upholstery of the godfather's car. Okay, so I'm acting really silly like that. And, 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 but I had to sit in Lee's lap. There wasn't enough room. 
and nobody felt sorry for him, they said. <laughs> said. So anyway, we get to uh, where they get out. They were walking along, and they were starting to use dirty jokes and everything. And Lee said, look, let's just go off by ourselves. We got the keys to the car. It was wonderful. They uh, said, you go ahead. Anyway, we walked around, and we had chocolate Cokes. And that's chocolate syrup in, in uh, Coca-Cola, you know, like that. And as we were, it was getting kind of late, so we were starting back toward the car. He was going to drive me back. And by the way, Lee could drive. We have many instances of it, but he pretended he couldn't. That stopped uh, his wife from demanding that they buy a car and other things because Lee had to act like he was a dissatisfied loser. I mean, you can't have a TV and a car and all these nice things and want to go off to Castro's workers' paradise. So he had to, to uh, live a lower-class life so that uh, he could uh, look like he really wanted to go to Cuba and so on, because that was the original plan. That changed later. But at this point, we're walking along, and all of a sudden, a sailor jumped out. Oh, to this day, um, I could see him right in front of me. I mean, the veins in his throat were throbbing back and forth. He was red in the face. He had a knife. He was going to... He said, give me your purse, girly. He says to him, to Lee, he said... And give me your wallet, he said, or I'm going to cut your face. And Lee real slowly pulls out his wallet. He said, you don't want her purse. That's what he said first. And then he said, you may get my face, he says. You may cut my face, he says. Because he he put out this switchblade right out from under this wallet. Now, Lee had been raised in New Orleans and knew how to handle things like this. He said, you may cut my face, he says, but not before I get your balls. And that guy <laughs> turned around and ran, this big sailor. Oh, I felt like, oh. So we jumped in the car and slammed down, the, uh, you know, you could close the, lock the door, and our hearts are beating like that. And, and, and Lee, I noticed he started shaking. And I said, Lee, you're shaking. He said, yes, he said, I, I, I was afraid. This is just, he says, this is just a normal reaction. He said, it will pass. So that's the kind of person he was. And yes, I kissed him. I kissed him in the car. He saved us, you know, and and he drove me back and uh, dropped me off. He went back and everybody got in the car and went home. Uh, the whole incident is in my book, Me and Lee. So I hope I've given you a, a glimpse of what he was like. He was a very good man. He joined the Marines when he was only 17, the minute he could turn. And now what they have in Wikipedia, they they put that Lee Oswald uh, dropped out of high school, and then they put a bunch of stuff in between. Then they say, oh, yeah, and then he joined the Marines. I went on Wikipedia and put in there that Lee got his GED in the Marines. One sentence. In a few minutes, it was re not only removed, but they took my Wikipedia biography. I'm an artist, an author. I've had been in documentaries. I've written books. Uh, my stuff, my book has been turned into a play, etc. They removed my biography that I'd had there for five years, just like that. So you will not find my name in the Wikipedia biography sections. Not there. How was your personality working in the world of dating and men back then as opposed to how it is now? All right. When I was in high school, I had lots of boyfriends and I loved it. I just really love life anyway, end up with five children. So obviously um, something was going on. Um, I'm never sitting in the car and everything getting hotter and hotter and 
And then I said things like this. I said, I, I'll tell you, I think I understand what, what you need and what your wants are. I said, let's pray to God and find out if he agrees. Um, that stopped it, you know, because no, they weren't willing to pray to God to find out if it was okay to, to take me to bed. So that's, that's the way I handled that. I, I was also athletic uh, besides all the things. Um, I, I wanted to be a universal genius or whatever. And anyway, I ended up getting medals, for example, in volleyball, basketball, despite my shortness. And uh, I ended up with three athletic medals from the University of Florida. And uh, Lee really admired that. I mean, we had planned to climb the heights of Chichen Itza. We planned to, to go through the jungles. And I remember one time Lee put his head up to heaven and he said, thank you, God, for this woman. Okay, I said, you get the grubs. I will put fry them in the pan and we'll have oil that then you can cook uh, armadillo meat in or whatever you want. I said, I'll go for it. So he was one of the guys when you said, when it was getting hot and heavy and you said, hey, let's pray to Jesus and see if he no, says it's okay. He school. prayed to Jesus and he got down on his knees and Jesus said it was okay. Well, you're getting close. Here's what happened. Lieb actually broke up with me at one point. He, he said, I can't do this. He says, my children, I, if, if we go off like this, I, I may never see them. It'll be years maybe before I see them. And he, he walked out and I cried. But then I, I, I gave him a, 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 I had a note I left for him. And anyway, I said, you know, I understand we mustn't interfere with your family. It was a heartbreaking decision for him. I knew that. I knew it. Well, here you see in the, uh, a book, it's anti-Oswald book. It says, for some reason, Lee was crying. And his wife was saying, go ahead, cry on, whatever it is. He said, I don't know what to do. That's what he was saying. Well, it was because of what we were going through. Well, a few days later, a couple days later, actually, uh, I saw him coming. And uh-oh. And what does he see? He sees a collie dog that was a friend of ours uh, that the landlady had started running after a cat. The cat went up the tree and got stuck. So Lee pulled the ladder out and he went up and he said, you know, come on, Mr. Cat, I'm going to get you down. And then he uh, let it go and it was screaming and squalling and scratched him and everything, but he got it down. And then I saw that he, we had a key so he could get in. I saw him, he's going for the key. So I went under the bed. I didn't want, I was so embarrassed. I said, go away, go away. You know, your family is more important. Well, there I'm under the bed and I've got dust bunny on my nose and everything like that. I'm just look ridiculous. I've got tears all over my face and I can see his shoes are all scuffed up. He was wearing his, his uh, 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 Marine shoes at that time. And he got down on his knees, he said, well, I planned to get down on my knees to you, but I didn't think it, I'd have to look at you under the bed. And he finally got me out from under the bed. And he said, I just can't do it. He says, I just can't, I, I can't, I can't let you go. And I said, well, find a way so that you can see your children, you know. And so we embraced and then uh, the landlady let us have the keys. Now I hadn't slept with him. Oh, we came close, but I just couldn't do it. I, I felt it was wrong because we had these standards. He did too. He didn't want to cheat on his wife. I didn't want to cheat on my husband, but I had the craziest marriage you could imagine. And, and she was, well, I'll put it this way. They didn't get along. They were going to divorce anyway. So we went off to the Roosevelt Hotel. And what, here's what's the interesting part. When he's still there in the room, he said, will you marry me? And I said, I'm not going to answer you. And he says, I know why, because Baker, 
never asked you to marry you, did he? He just said, I'm going to come marry you. And he didn't get you a ring or anything, did he? So he took his ring off and laid it on the floor. And he said, I promise when I come to you, I won't be wearing this damned ring. Now, the reason he said that is because when we walked together, my wedding ring was on my left hand. His wedding ring, because of being Soviet marriage, was on his right. And they, they clicked together. It made us feel terrible. That's what I'm ta- telling you about the morals and worries that we had. Now, you will learn that on the last day, when Lee Oswald leaves Friday morning, he left his wedding ring behind on the dresser. With $170. And, and yes, and the $170. But you see, he left everything he could for Marina. But that was such a message to me, because I know if he could have gotten out there alive, we would have been together. Please marry me. I said, okay, if you ask me a hundred times, I will. You know, that man did ask me 100 times, will you marry me? And when he said number 100, I said, yes. And we gave our vows to whatever God there might be. And in our minds, we were married. So that's the way it was. How many weeks or days was that from November 22nd, 1963? Well, I've never counted the days like that, but, but gosh, I, didn't, I guess I just didn't do it. Usually I could give you an immediate answer, but we were even in bed together naked before then, uh, but we didn't have sex together. It's, I can't tell you what it was like to be with him because he was so gentle and patient with me. One time I was so exhausted that he just warmed me up so because I, I would have gotten sick. Uh, so to me, sex begins when you're doing things like that, even though we hadn't consummated. So you're saying you were never fully intimate with him? Oh, no, no, I was. I'm saying that where you would say we had sex is very mechanical compared to where I would, because right, even in, in May, we were very close physically, but without having sex. I know that may sound weird to others, but no, it doesn't sound I, it doesn't sound weird. So when did you finally have sex, or you never did? Oh no, we did. Boy, did we ever! <laughs> <laughs> we had plenty. Oh my gosh. Oh sure, there's no problem there. It's just that uh, to actually, we we had sex. Let me put it this way: Lee left Riley's on July nineteenth, Friday when he was fired over a green glass. Well, we were already having sex at Riley's before that. He even had a key to Riley's. And uh, by the way, I put my initial J on his time cards. We had, I had to cover for him. That's why we had these cover jobs going on. You can read all the details. I have the documents. I have his time cards with my initial J on them. And I kept evidence to prove that I was the secretary for the vice president of Riley's. Can you imagine me being a, Secretary, I was dreadful. Oh, just dreadful. Wasn't my my cup of tea at all. Anyway, one time, we actually we were so desperate, uh, we uh, went to next door where there was a red van that belonged to the city or something like that. It was being fixed, and we got inside and 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 we tried to make love in the van. We almost died of heat prostration. So we had our <laughs> bad moments. So then we started going to hotels, and that was due to. Uh, his name was C-L-S, and that was Clay Laverne Shaw, gave Lee money. We didn't trust that. 
It's the only time really I saw money like that changing uh, hands or heard about it. Now, when Lee and I had to part and I was sent back to Florida, he said, I don't want to lose you. He, I said, you can't lose me. And I'm, my bags were packed. He gave me $400. It turned out that Lee was getting $200 a month from the FBI and, four, and $200 a month also for the CIA. He gave me his whole month's worth. And then I found out he had to save somehow that money so he could go to Mexico City. Between the time I saw him last and when I saw him on TV, he had lost at least 15 pounds and he didn't have a lot of extra weight to lose. So he was much thinner. And he was. it says in the, the anti-Oswald book that for some reason he was starving himself. And I know he was doing that to save money so that because he'd given me all his money for the whole month. In your opinion, why yeah. did he leave his wedding ring and $170 on the counter of his home where his wife and children were if he thought that he was going to come back alive? No, he wouldn't be coming back alive. He, if he could, he, he was there, he said, he said, if I stay, that will be one less bullet aimed at Kennedy. He told me he thought that he would be found shot dead with a rifle in his hands. I'm going to tell you something that people don't understand. They talk about this curtain rod thing that, that uh, Wesley Bill Frazier, if he carried curtain rods there and they suddenly disappeared and nobody saw them inside. But imagine, remember, if you're a sniper and you're supposed to, and Lee said, why are they doing this and bringing me into this group? Because he said, I'm not that good. I am not that good. So he was, everybody who was a sniper, they're supposed to be working with their rifles all the time and, you know, sighting them in and, and practicing and target practicing. Yet this rifle he is supposed to have used sat on the floor in the garage for 11 weeks at the Payne's garage. He's supposed to have taken it apart after taking it out of this blanket okay putting it into a paper bag the bag has no marks in it no oil even though it had cosmoline all over the darn rifle all right he's supposed to put it together again with a dime because there were no tools to put it together with at the texas school book depository after somehow sneaking it in the fact of the matter is they first found a mauser and later they found a carcano rifle and suddenly the mauser disappears now i here's what i think happened Lee knows that he's supposed to bring a firearm in if he's part of this group. I think he brought the, the this is just speculation, but I think knowing him, that he probably brought these curtain rods from a distance, it looked like a gun. He is carrying it under his arm in military style, just like you would if you were carrying a rifle and you were on parade. It is under his arm and he's swinging along, he's holding it under his, cupped under his hand. That's not the way you usually carry curtain rods, but that's the way it was described. Then they disappear well. I think that he was pretending to bring in a, a firearm. They saw it from a distance. And I think he told one person that he was bringing a Mauser in. I think he was telling the other one he's bringing a Carcano. And that's why they had both of them, you know, ready to uh, trace to him. And they had to uh, finally decide which one to use because he didn't bring anything in. Why did he think he was going to die? Who was going to kill him and why? Oh, because he was in too deep. He had by then, by that Sunday, he had also sent off warnings that that uh, to someone. I think it was to the FBI.
but just as he'd done before. And he said they wouldn't leave him alone, that he was seeing too many faces, and therefore he didn't think he was going to survive. Now, what's interesting is that the $170 had been saved, oh, for quite a while, for several weeks, and he left that for Marina. The ring he left to me, that was a message to me that he was not, in his mind, you know, he was leaving for good. If he managed to escape somehow, and we always hoped, you know, you think you're, you think you think you're immortal when you're that young. We always had this hope that maybe we'll make it out alive. And I think when he left that ring behind, his hope was that we would meet again. That's what I believe. Do you know he came to me in a dream? Now, please don't think I'm I'm not that sentimental. I've only had a couple of dreams about him. But in this dream, he came and gave me a kiss. And it was a holy kiss. It was very interesting. Before I spoke out, there was a dream I had a nightmare over and over again. I saw Lee, like on a big Ferris wheel. It was going around and around, and they were shooting at him. And then he'd fall out, and he'd land on the, he'd land on the ground, and, and like red flames came out of like a skull. It was I would wake up screaming. After I spoke out, I don't have any of those anymore. So, have you ever met his wife? We spoke on the phone briefly once, but there's been a great, here's the thing. Marina has a problem in that she spoke uh, under duress, but nevertheless, she spoke under oath. She said things under oath that she knows were not true. She can't even verify or deny certain things that simply didn't happen. In our book uh, that I put out, it's coming out in August, uh, it's called Kennedy and Oswald, The Big Picture. We have evidence and proof uh, exactly of, of what was going on in the Payne household and how Lee and Marina retreated and how they were babysat, you know, sitting uh, Marina. They compromised her. A lot of people said, oh, how mean Lee Oswald was because he didn't let her learn English. I want to tell you what Lee Oswald did for his wife. If she had learned English, she could have been accused of being a spy for the USSR. He kept her so isolated that she couldn't learn or talk to very many people. He did that to protect her. A lot of people don't understand that. For those of you who've listened to this podcast, I'm going to plug something that you're probably annoyed about. I'm going to plug the movie I Killed JFK, which we got theatrical distribution for one night only, a special event. May 31st in theaters all across the country. You can go to ikilljfk.com to get tickets. It centers around the story of the only living person who's ever admitted to killing JFK, along with 20 different interviews with eyewitnesses, historians, and experts corroborating his story. And afterwards, a panel discussion with five of the last remaining living experts on the JFK assassination. It's an amazing night. Please check it out. May 31st, one night only, Wednesday. Get your tickets at ikilljfk.com. What made you decide to finally come forward? It was December 26, 1998, when my daughter went off on her honeymoon that I got the film out, JFK, which I refused to watch before then. I was afraid I'd break down in front of the kids. And I watched it, and I was very ashamed of myself because in there it says silence is cowardice. 
and here I had stayed, been silent. I, I couldn't bear it anymore. I realized I had put off all those years and tried to live with it. All the years that I never looked, not even once, I was the most ignorant person. I did not even know that Jack Ruby was the one who shot Lee. Jack knew him. But what it is, they had uh, introduced Jack to me as Sparky Rubenstein, and I only saw the back of this man when he shot Lee. And I remember screaming, and, and I remember throwing up, and that's all. I remember for two days. Well, anyway, from then on, I never even looked at a newspaper uh, uh, article or anything. I was completely 100% out of it. I, I, I couldn't bear to look at any of it. I started writing, and I, and I contacted... Uh, 48 hours, and they said, wow, we're sending you to 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes investigated me for 14 months, tried three times to film, got stopped three times. So you've been dedicating your life for the last 20 years to clear Lee Harvey Oswald's name. Well, I want to ask you a very personal question that I want you to give me the answer to. If the roles were reversed, and you were married to Lee Harvey Oswald, and you knew he was having an affair with a woman, would you still be working for 20 years to clear his name knowing that he was a guy who was unfaithful to you and cheated on you and dishonored you and your children? Are you, if you only understood the relationship that he had with Marina Oswald, you, I don't think he would... I, for example, Nigel Turner came with our, the documentary, The Love Affair, where I talked about Lee and our relationship. He showed it to Marina Oswald. She looked at it and she said, well, he had an affair. And Marina was compromised and was forced to lie and under oath. And she would, her position that she is in is that she would be, go to prison for perjury if she actually spoke out. I'm very proud of her, and our, the book was dedicated to her and to the two girls, all right? Now, don't put me in a position that would never happen, because like Lee said, and, and I'm going to say this just once, he said whether even if the very heavens had folded away, we would have found each other. And, and at my age, let them do what they want to me. I'm telling you, I will stand firm forever for this man this innocent man, this good man, this man who really had to marry someone when he was in the Soviet Union so he could continue his mission and not be deported. Can anyone who's still alive today be held accountable to the assassination of JFK? Yes. Yes. There aren't nearly as many of them as there were in 1998 and 1999 when I got so many problems. Here's the thing. These people groom and put in place the uh, heirs to what they, the mischief they've done. Now, I, had a, I, I call him my son. There's, his name is St. John Hunt. He is the son of the famous Watergate burglar and CIA agent who confessed that the CIA, and we must not forget that, the CIA was responsible for what happened. You can have all kinds of uh, involvement with the mafia and involvement with the FBI and so on, but the CIA is the one that could have, 
Well, actually, the Secret Service was involved as well. These people hated Kennedy, and not all of them. You understand, I feel I've been protected sometimes by some of the CIA agents that might be out there. They're not all bad. They wanted to serve their country just like Lee did. But the people I'm talking about were willing to kill to get what they needed, get what they wanted. And yeah, and I can tell you who's lying. I, I know when somebody's lying. I've got a whole list of the people who have lied. It's easy. Uh, for example, they interviewed this guy at Riley's. He said, well, Lee Oswald would sit there, you know, during breaks with dazed look on his face smoking. Lee didn't smoke. I mean, there are things like that that are easy to pick out. So all your stories are drowning in the ocean. You can only say one, holy shit, I can't believe this story. The American people, it's obscure. They don't know anything about this. It might have been in a book here or a passage there. Tell our audience if you had to pull one story that was drowning in the ocean out of all of them, the number one highlight, holy crap, I can't believe this, the American people will be blown away when they hear the story about what happened around this crime. Tell our audience what it would be. I'm going to tell you something. There are only, I've looked in through the history books, there are only a few, only a few stories where you find out that th there was a great love affair going on. Now, however you may put it in your mind, I say, holy cow, <laughs> wow, or whatever, sounds so trivial or so mundane, but what's going to endure is our love. That's what's going to endure. That is what is going to reach people. It's going to reach their hearts. And they'll know why I did this, how much I loved him, how much he loved me. And that, you see, the fact that love can conquer all things, that's the biggest thing of all. Is there any kind of hope or path to justice for you, Oswald's family, the Kennedy family, America and the world coming up in the future? And if so, what is, in your opinion, going to happen that will help change everything forever? Well, I look at Joan of Arc. I mean, uh, I'm no Joan of Arc, but I've, I've suffered. And what I noticed is that God doesn't necessarily protect you from suffering or anything like that. But nobody today thinks that Joan of Arc was a witch. Now, what I'm trying to get at is that Lee Oswald, by the way, the majority of people who uh, have even checked a, a few of the YouTube uh, scenarios, like Akilah Clemens saying, I saw two people shooting at uh, Officer Tippin. Neither one of them was Oswald, and I was told to shut up or I'd be sorry. We have all those now on the internet. We have people can find out soon um, if they just are careful what they look at. If you want to go and listen to the History Channel where a former FBI, uh, CIA agent is telling everybody he's going to do an independent investigation when he gets his paycheck, his retirement check from the CIA, uh, people who are in the know are just laughing their heads off, and that's the way it is. Many people now know the truth, and this is being ignored. We had hundreds of comments that History Channel erased. Those comments were saying, are you crazy? What are you talking about that Lee Oswald killed Kennedy? We know better. And this is the preponderance of those who are speaking out. 
they know the difference because it doesn't take very long and it doesn't take more than a double-digit IQ to figure out that Lee Oswald was framed. It's right there on YouTube. And I will not be quiet either until they shut me up. By the way, I have thousands and thousands of friends. They have helped so much to, to keep me safe, to uh, make sure that this, the word gets out. There are many interviews. There are, of course, there's the book Me and Lee. There's the book David Ferry, Mafia Pilot. There are these um, many interviews, and uh, they tried to stop it for a while, but they keep putting them out there anyway. Like the love affair was only shown five times, and it was banned. We had two presidents, two former presidents that objected to it. We had the Lyndon Johnson uh, uh, estate, you know, going to sue the History Channel. Well, the History Channel has capitulated. But guess what? The love affair is still out there, still being seen. I still get messages uh, from people saying, I didn't know about this. It's spreading. It's been wonderful. And I have all co complete confidence in the people who are kind, humane, people deep down aren't fooled all the time. And that's the bottom line. Awesome. Before I say goodbye to you, I'd be remiss if there's something that you want to say or you want me to ask you that you've never told anybody about. Here's the thing. One of the objections has been that, oh, Lee Oswald was homosexual. Lee had to penetrate certain groups. I'm gonna tell you, the homosexual underground in New Orleans in particular, they had, they had the goods on many vulnerable people. For example, and if you look at Dallas, look at General Walker, did you know he was a homosexual? And the only way you can get information from some of these people are to actually have homosexual friends. So Lee is in investigating all this. I know one time he came to me, he said, he said, Judefki, he called me Judefki because we could speak Russian together. My mother and friends used to call me Judefski. And Lee said, no, that's not good Russian. He said, it has to be Judefki. So he called me Judefki. And he said, Judefki, he said, you've got to give me a kiss. And I said, what's the matter? He said, I just have to be kissed. I've got to be around a woman. I can't, I've been around all these homosexuals. <laughs> so I just want to share that, that we had very open minds. Lee and I would sit in the back of the bus together with the blacks. We were civically, uh, civil rights oriented, and we were oriented for the rights of blacks, oriented for the rights of homosexuals or anybody else. We felt it was wrong. But like Lee said, he felt like the human body, a woman and a man, they would fit together like a puzzle, was the way he put it. Also, he had interesting ideas about religion I wanted to share because uh, he was an agnostic. And I asked him, well, what is your viewpoint on religion? Because I had once wanted to become a nun. And then I felt very disappointed with things like um, the Holocaust and so on. And he said, well, it's like this. He said, you have all these different religions and they all say they heard from God. And they all have their own ideas about what God told them. He said, therefore, I don't think that God is a good communicator, and therefore, I'm not responsible. So he had so much wisdom for his age and for his youth. He played a darn good game of chess, too. So I'm just trying to say that this was a very human person. He loved Kennedy, and this is the one story I want everyone to hear. And Marina Oswald has told it as well. But when little Patrick Kennedy died in October okay, of 1963, Lee Oswald, hearing of it, broke down and wept. That's how much he loved the Kennedys. 
That's why he did everything he could to try to save President Kennedy. I didn't even like President Kennedy. I came from the University of Florida. I was with all these anti-Castro people. They told me how horrible and hateful Kennedy was. I had admired him when I was in high school, wrote a letter uh, to him, in, you know, offering my services to my country. And here, uh, the I, I came to New Orleans when I met Lee. I said, I just can't stand Kennedy. He said, I have to teach you an awful lot then. Because this, he said, this is a great man, a great president. And he tried all he could to try to save him. I just am so grateful and so humbled. Thank you so much. Well, God bless you and God bless everyone hearing what I had to say. I hope it sticks with them and they understand that this is about justice for Kennedy. And this is just about justice for everybody then. Well, that wraps up this episode with Judith Very Baker. I hope you enjoyed it. To me, it was like nothing I've ever done in my life. Inspirational, powerful, amazing, and shed so much light on a mystery that's gone far too many years unsolved. And I hope that you gained some closure today, and I hope that you will go out on May 31st, Wednesday, it's one night only, and see I Killed JFK at a theater near you. You can find the theaters, tickets, and information at ikilledjfk.com. Check it out. I guarantee you it will blow you away. And I want to also share with you upcoming great episode with one of the greatest comedians in the history of my generation, Bill Burr, coming up soon. Look for that. And thank you all so much for all your support. As always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Excellent Perspective, five stars by Gnarly Harley. February 8th, 2017. It reads, Barry reminds me of the dude from The Big Lebowski. Low-key, laid-back, but very on point, and with a great deal of thought-provoking questions for his knowledgeable, interesting, and dynamic cast of characters that serve as his guests. Thank you, Barry, for sharing your world with us. As a working actor, your insights are helping to shape my perspective on the world that surrounds showbiz and the wonderful people that inhabit it. Thank you so, so much, Gnarly Harley. I can't think of a better way to end my 200th episode. Congratulations, you are a winner. 
Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, you're going for. Life is for the dreamer. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.